This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. A great way to support the library is by visiting the library shop, where you can find thousands of items for book lovers, like library totes, mugs, and magnets, boasting quotes from famous writers. Visit shop.nypl.org and use the code PODCAST for a 10% discount. And remember, every purchase supports the New York Public Library. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're thrilled to present a thought-provoking lecture from New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. He recently came to the library to deliver the annual Robert B. Silvers Lecture and gave a stirring talk he titled, Public Discourse in a Time of Crazy. Krugman is introduced by Robert Silvers himself, editor of the New York Review of Books. Thank you for very much. Uh, I'm uh, I want to welcome all of you. Uh, before these lectures happened, I felt that editors like myself stood on the whole. Uh, work with writers and stay out of sight. Uh, in the middle distance, someone said. But then the late uh, Max Pileski, as Paul said, uh, made the truly startling uh, suggestion to do something in my name. I felt a, an editor's impulse to do something to honor writers I've admired. And to do so in a way that would involve the two institutions that have meant the most to me, the, the New York Review and the New York Public Library, which for me is one of the most admirable institutions we have. It's a truly democratic source of the mind of the city. Anyone from anywhere in the world can walk in off the street and get any book. There's nothing like that that I know of anywhere else. And it's, so it's a truly democratic source of the mind of the city. So I want to thank the head of the library, Tony Marks, and Paul, and the library for making all this possible. Now I have to say that for editors like myself, something astonishing took place in the world of political journalism some 17 years ago in 1999, when Paul Krugman began writing regularly for the New York Times. Many of us have heard of him, the brilliant young economist from MIT. We knew that in 1991, he won the John Bates Clark Prize for the best work by an economist under 40 in the United States. 
And as the, the prize giver said, and I quote him, I quote them, he had a, a quote, leading part in every development in international economics during the last decade. And that, that mastery, some years later, brought him the Nobel Prize in economics. And partly, and this was said, for his explanation, contrary to, to traditional theory of why and how world trade was dominated by a few, few countries similar to each other. So when we heard he would write a column for the Times, we thought we would be, and he we would be seeing something like an elucidation every week of the complexities of international trade and national growth and recession. And something quite different happened. Paul, it became clear, had one of the clearest and most incisive uh, political minds we had encountered in discussion of economic processes, whether the effects of climate or the different systems of healthcare or the equity of tax systems. He was able to link the issues at hand with the economic and political interests responsible for those programs <coughs> and <coughs> for their effects, particularly on those less well off. Again and again, he revealed the depths of ignorance surrounding economic and social policy and its political sponsors. In a column just the other day, he asked, and I quote him, now can changes in positions on policy win elections when most of the news media refuse to cover policy of substance. He wrote that for the 2016 campaign, the three national news shows devoted a total of 35 minutes combined to concentrated, concentrated discussions of policy. Such observations, for me and I think for many others, have again and again gone up like flares in our murky public life. And so, you can imagine that we couldn't have been more grateful when he accepted to give this nice talk and to repeat his title, Public Discourse in a Time of Crazy, Paul Krugman.
All right. Uh, good evening, although I have to admit, not as good an evening as I expected it to be when I agreed to give this talk. Um, uh, okay. So, um, the conventions of this kind of event say that this is the point when I talk about how honored I am and what a privilege it is to give this lecture, which makes it kind of hard for me to say credibly just how honored I am and how privileged I am to actually be, be asked to give this lecture. Um, it, it's uh, particularly, uh, obviously, this institution is, is, is a, uh, a wonder of this great city. Uh, but particularly, I have to say, giving a lecture in honor of Bob Silvers is, is, is a special, special uh, honor. Um, and I want to talk just a little bit about Bob and the institution he helped create, the New York Review. Um, and uh, as you'll see, this will eventually have some relevance to the broader theme. So uh, just a word about, I think many people here probably know a bit about the history of the New York Review of Books. Uh, it was actually founded uh, during a newspaper strike um, at a time which was opportune because um, publishers and authors were desperate for some place to, uh, to review and, and give publicity to books. So it was a, it was a moment of opportunity and um, stepped into that temporary gap. Um, but from the beginning, the review was not doing what a lot of book reviewing in the conventional press was doing at the time. It was not uh, relatively bland, timid uh, uh, discussions. It was not, this is a good read, you should buy it, although that was certainly part of it. Um, what, what the review has always specialized in is using um, book reviewing uh, or the, the, the literary world as, a, as a, a launching pad, a platform. There's a kind of a ritual involved, having written a number of times, the, the characteristic uh, New York Review piece is one in which you um, you certainly are you build it around some books you do at, among other things review the books but you take those books as a a starting point for a discussion of a broader theme you, you use it and and the the New York Review um, characteristically gets uh, people who are real real experts in something uh, whatever it might be it could be. Uh, it could be physics, it could be biology, it could be the arts, it could be uh, uh, ancient history. And that person being really, truly knowledgeable um, uses the form of a book review as a way to have a discussion that is aimed not at experts in the field, not at other experts in the field, but at a broader audience of intelligent readers. Uh, it, it's, in a way, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a device. It, it's almost, uh, there. It, it's not exact, there, there's a little bit of dissonance, deliberate dissonance between form and, and function here, um, but it serves a very useful purpose. The, fo the, the book review form um, is a way to, in a way, force the author uh, outside professional jargon, outside uh, the, the normal uh, way in which one writes if you're doing inside communications in a field, out into something that will appeal to a broader audience. Um, it's, uh, Actually, it's a remarkably hard thing to do. Uh, if, you, if you are immersed in a field, if you've spent decades doing whatever it is you do, any field of expertise, um, ditching the jargon, finding a way to communicate to people who don't know, uh, who are coming at it from a standing start, although they may be uh, themselves 
very knowledgeable about other things, uh, doing it in a way that doesn't involve just appeals to authority, saying, here, I am I'm a famous professor, you should believe what I say, but instead making an argument is, is a really, um, very difficult task. And what's amazing is how, again and again, and when you read the New York Review, it's pulled off. You see people who do uh, uh, something which, and I, I view this not as a, as a writer, but as a, as a consumer, uh, a reader of these things, enormously enlightening things on, on subjects uh, of which, from a starting point, I know nothing. Um, and it, you know, I, and I, I, by the way, I've seen how hard it is, not just having gone through it, trying to do it, but having seen colleagues, uh, professional colleagues, uh, try to f uh, write for a broader audience and fail. It's, it's a very easy thing to, to not do. It is kind of a miracle that, that it works so often in the New York Review of Books. But of course, the secret of the miracle is Bob Silver's. Uh, it's the editing. It's the uh, um, writing for uh, the New York Review is a exhilarating, terrifying, uh, and sometimes humiliating process as, uh, as, as Bob takes your uh, basically terrible draft and uh, starts telling you what you need to do to actually turn it. it I wish we had, I think it's probably impossible, I wish we had a, a collection of before and afters of, uh, of, of essays written by people before Bob got to them and that, then what have finally got published. You see, it, it's a really miraculous thing. And the result is a tremendous resource for, the, for all of us who you know, are interested in the life of the mind, not only in whatever our narrow specialty might be, but more broadly, there's nothing quite like it. The, the, uh, the, the New York Review has been a kind of republic of the mind that, that gives you um, enlightenment uh, across a broad range of things. It's, it's been a wonderful thing. But, okay, and you know, this, that's the, this is the kind of thing that ends with a but. Um, what are we to make of that mission um, in, the, in the age of Donald Trump? What, what, what are we doing here? What, what, are, what are those, uh, like all the people who write for the New York Review, people like Bob Silver, people I hope like myself, who are trying to take uh, serious arguments, sometimes subtle arguments, get them across to a broader public, uh, what are we even doing in, in, in this world? Um, and so what I want to do from here on is, is talk about uh, what it is that's going on, all the things that, that, that we should be concerned about, and some, some bad responses, and then maybe at the end some possibly good responses to what's going on. Okay, so um, uh, I guess three years ago, um, uh, Josh Barrow, who worked for the Times for a while, now writes for Business Insider, but he introduced a very useful word uh, into political discourse. Um, uh, borrowed from South Park, by the way, so you're going to find, but um, uh, the word is derp, and never mind the, the cartoon origins. Um, what it comes to me is the insistent repetition of some claim, some statement, some point of view, um, no matter how often it's proved wrong. Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of derp out there. Um, the, uh, uh, it, uh, I, I picked it up for my use largely because of, of uh, issues involving economic policy, um, and in particular, actually, uh, monetary. Uh, the derp is strong when it comes to monetary issues. They are, there's nothing quite like the, the um, insistence by, well, especially after, after the financial crisis, um, the, the proposition that the efforts the, uh, 
that some governments, central banks, that we're making to, to uh, mitigate the crisis, to rescue us from the worst of, 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 of what was happening, to avoid a, a full replay of the Great Depression, the claim that this was going to lead to uh, disaster, that it was going to lead to uh, runaway inflation and, and so on, um, that has been a, a very uh, a remarkably consistent theme, um, and it's, it, it just won't go away no matter how much it, it turns out to be wrong. So, it, and the, uh, so the, um, it was one thing, I guess, and people who were warning that, uh, that, that the stimulus and the, and the uh, expansionary monetary policy of 2009 would lead to inflation, I guess that was a position you could hold. I, I would have said, and did say even then, that there was lots of reasons and lots of historical and international evidence to suggest that that, that was a... Uh, a wrongly founded position, um, but okay, you could, it, you could, someone could say that in early 2009 and, and at least consider that they were making an argument, but if you made the same argument in 2010 and then made it again in 2011 and then made it again, and, uh, and I'm, I'm not, that's not hyperbole by the way, you can take a look at, at there, there are um, quite a few people who um, um, have written essentially the same article Inflation is just around the corner, run away, and uh, they just keep on making it despite the fact that it keeps not happening. Uh, and that's, that's derp. That's derp in, in practice. Um, and what you see is it, the, the characteristic of, a, of this in, um, in economic policy, but I fear in other things as well, um, is that nobody ever admits that they were wrong. It's not, even, it, it's not even a question of making excuses about why they were wrong. They never admit that they were wrong. So to take a kind of classic example, there was a, a, uh, an open letter to Ben Bernanke in 2010 warning that his quantitative easing, I'm really not going to be talking much technical economics here, but warning that that would debase the dollar and, and lead to inflation, uh, which never happened. Um, but uh, several years later, I think four years later, uh, Bloomberg rounded up as many of the people who signed that letter, which included some respectable economists, and to ask, you know, why were you wrong? And no one would admit that they were wrong, uh, not not one. So there's a there, there's a lot of that out there. Okay, so so derp has been an ongoing issue uh, in in all of our public discussion, all, all discussion of policy, all discussion of what works, um, but never well, n n never to what we we've uh, we've just seen, right? I mean, we we have just uh, um, ended up. Uh, you know, the president-elect is, is the king of derp. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Now, um, you know, presidential candidates, uh, even presidents, saying things that aren't true is not a new phenomenon. Uh, and when uh, uh, even things that are grossly not true. So uh, in my early years at the New York Times, I was doing a lot on a fellow by the name of George Bush um, who was claiming that his tax cut which was overwhelmingly plutocrat-friendly, was actually aimed at the middle class. That was during the 2000 campaign. Um, and he was, um, you know, a couple of years later, um, I think in the, in the light of recent outrages, we forget just how shocking some of the things that happened then were. Um, the constant insinuation um, that we needed to invade Iraq because Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, which was always obvious nonsense, but never stopped being implied. Um, and that's a, that was a, a, a pretty shocking thing. Of course, we were you know, 
we used to think that being brought to war on false pretenses was the worst thing that could happen to America, but now we, we, now we know better. Um, the, um, and um, these days you see sometimes people trying to hold up Mitt Romney as the, you know, the, the honorable man. Uh, and uh, uh, don't forget that during the whole of that 2012 campaign, one of his constant themes was denouncing President Obama for his apology tour of the world, apologizing for America, which of course never happened. So there was a lot of, of blatant untruth um, in some previous political campaigns. But now it's just uh, what this, this campaign behind us was on a completely different level, uh, where you had, and there will, I think anyone, um, it, it ran across multiple um, areas of, 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 of inquiry of policy, um, but um, I, I tend to focus on the ones where we have numbers. So uh, we had, uh, you know, we are, uh, the reality of, of America is that, take the case of crime, crime is very close to the lowest it's ever been. Um, it's up a little bit in the past year. Uh, but it is America, America's big cities are safer than they've been as far as we can, basically as far as we can ever tell. And, and that's not just a you know, statistic that you might not believe if everybody, almost everybody here is presumably a New Yorker. And you have to have, right, particularly if you, if you remember New York as it was 40 years ago, it's, it's a part of lived experience that crime is way, way down. Um, but all through the campaign, candidate Trump kept on saying, we are in a unprecedented levels of crime, our, our urban areas are nightmarish, they're worse than, than, uh, than civil war conditions. Um, not, no amount of, and of course this was repeatedly called out, refuted, didn't matter, just kept on going, and a lot of people believed it, even though it, wasn't, uh, it was as, as untrue as you can get, as the opposite of true. Um, uh, the uh, still out there, to just just in the last few days, they, we're still seeing a repeat of the claim um, that uh, that America is the highest taxed nation in the world, which is not again. Actually, it's not not just uh, that that the numbers, you know, the statistics say that we're actually pretty close to the bottom among advanced countries, um, but also experience. I mean, you have a you know. Spend a little time in Europe, uh, and uh, you'll quickly get a sense of what, what real high taxation looks like. And, uh, but, but again, it, it just was never dropped as a theme, and, and people believed it. Um, and the, uh, un, the, the derp did not end with the election. Uh, so if you, if you take a look at, um, uh, at, at uh, what was amazingly dominating uh, the news cycles for much of, of last week, um, we have the, you know, the rescue, uh, supposedly, this, the saving of jobs by uh, the carrier manufacturing plant in Indiana. You've all been reading about that. Um, it turns out that we're actually talking about 730 jobs. Um, now, all right, if you are actually going to do a bit of, you know, uh, if, you, if, if you're going to do a little bit of reality, you would say, okay, um, even aside from exactly what was done, what, what, what were the promises and threats that made this happen, and is this the way you want to be running policy? Um, you know, America is a very big place. Uh, there's 145 million workers. Um, it, it's a constant shuffling. You know, there's the thing, jobs come and go. Um, in an average month, we lose a, mil a million and a half people are, uh, are fired or laid off. 
in America every, every month, which means 75,000 every working day, which means that the whole carrier thing was 1% of the number of people fired on the day that the announcement was made. How did this become, it not, and of course it was a huge news story, dominated the news cycle for several days, and according to polls, it's a huge hit with the public. People love it. So, um, so DERP um, continues to flourish. It, 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 uh, um, it, it does extremely well. And, and you might ask, you know, how is this possible? Um, part of the answer is, well, we do have the, the flood of, of fake news, uh, which is, is, is a new phenomenon, but also uh, regular, uh, allegedly non-fake news has been amazingly bad at this. It, how, um, it, Bob mentioned the, uh, the, the, the three network news shows uh, over the course of the entire campaign devoted 35 minutes in total to policy. That's all three combined. Uh, by the way, they devoted 125 minutes to Hillary's emails, which I'll uh, want to come back to some of those things a bit later as well. Um, so there's a tremendous failure. turns out that the institutions that should be gatekeepers of, of sense in our political, in our public discourse, by and large, are not doing it. And then it just turns out that um, people, uh, I think we, it's not just the fault of, of media, fake or allegedly non-fake. It's also um, appealing stories uh, will play. Uh, if you tell the coal, the people who's used to work in the coal industry or whose parents used to work in the coal industry, I can bring back the coal jobs, um, that's a story they want to hear. In fact, it's do a little bit of homework and you realize it's, it's completely impossible. That's, that's, this is not, we, you know, we didn't lose coal jobs because of uh, environmental policy or foreign competition. We lost them because, um, because we get our coal these days by strip mining and mountaintop removal, which doesn't really employ very many people. Uh, but that's, uh, people don't want to hear that. And appealing falsehoods, it turns out there's no effective check in our public discourse. At least uh, there wasn't this year and, and, um, and that's, that's been a really rude shock. Um, so, suppose you're the kind of person who writes for the New York Review, uh, or you're the kind of person who likes to read the New York Review and, and not only finds yourself um, informed, but likes to believe that this enterprise, that, that um, sophisticated but readable, comprehensible discussion of things that matter, um, is, is a force that matters in the world, that is not simply a form of entertainment for, for, um, uh, for the literati, but in fact matters, it's, that it's something that, that can, can make the world a better place. Um, what do you do? Uh, how, for those of us who, who, who write this sort of thing, the uh, question has got to be, uh, you know, what are we even doing? Uh, does, is this all irrelevant? Um, and more to the point, I guess, what do we do now? What, what, what is the, what's the route forward? Okay, um, that's a hard question to answer. Let me start with an easier question, uh, which is what are the things that you should not be doing? Okay, and the, the you meaning the audience, but also I think to some extent, uh, I'm, I'm obviously thinking about people like myself. What, what should you not be doing uh, after this really disheartening um, year? Um, and it seems to me there are three big temptations, uh, which will be appealing in different degrees to different people, but there are three big 
ways that you can go wrong um, that, that would be the wrong way to respond to this. Uh, I'll, I'll call them quietism, uh, appeasement, um, and emulation. Um, so let me, let me start with uh, quietism, which is a, uh, uh, by what, that, what I mean by that, and it's probably something that applies mostly, I don't know, it applies quite strongly to people you know, like me who have a professional uh, side, uh, but also I think to, to people out there who are, uh, who are readers, consumers of this stuff, um, and it's basically saying you give up on the attempt to engage with the with the wider world, you, you turn inwards. You go, uh, you go into your uh, specialty. If if um, if you're doing economics, let's go back to writing papers uh, for um, uh, that are read by by a few hundred people, and let's you know do uh, the, the the scholarly enterprise and forego any connections um, with any, any attempt to, to get the, the word out uh, to a, a wider world. Um, and look, um, for me at least, that, that's definitely a very strong temptation. Uh, in fact, let me tell you what I did uh, Sunday morning. Uh, so uh, I actually was going to, I had to write a column later that day, but I, what I spent, what I did on the morning uh, was I, I, I was, there were some questions that were really, uh, related maybe to the political scene, but mostly it's just an intellectual question about um, international trade and technology and jobs and manufacturing and, and whatever. Um, and I decided I, I needed to clarify that stuff in my own mind and then maybe write up a little bit for other people. So I sat down with, uh, uh, had spent a very happy several hours reading uh, some uh, academic papers, um, then uh, uh, huddling up with my, my friend Fred, um, that's Federal Reserve Economic Data. It's a fantastic, fantastic website for, for dragging up numbers. Uh, actually, uh, in, my, in, my, uh, in my community, sometimes we look at somebody who you know, is, 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 seems to be weirdly ignorant of, of stuff that shouldn't be, a, you know, is easy to find. We say, you know, uh, uh, do you even Fred, bro? Uh, so, uh, um, so, and, um, and then doing some, some light statistical work, uh, a couple of, and, um, uh, and at the end of it produced a little three-page PDF uh, on, on the stuff. And um, it was a was wonderfully relaxing, soothing experience. It was kind of the, uh, the nerd equivalent of, of, of watching uh, cat videos on YouTube, uh, <laughs> which, which I also do, by the way. So, uh, um, it's great, um, and uh, and this obviously uh, you want people will continue to do that sort of thing. People will continue to to work in in their uh, particular worlds, work on stuff that is not necessarily going to hit a, mad, uh, a, a, a mass audience, um, and quite possibly um, most people, uh, even in a field, are going to do that. It's uh, um, it's. Not, not everybody can or should be writing, uh, trying to influence uh, uh, non-technical, non-professional opinion. It's uh, not, I mean, not everybody can write for the New York Review of Books. Uh, in fact, uh, I had, long, long ago, I tried to write something for Bob when I was much, much younger, and, and he rejected it outright. I may not remember that, but he was right. It was terrible, because I had no idea at that point how to do it. So, um, but I do think that some people, in the end, even if you are the most inward-looking scholarly person, uh, 
I'm not sure how this works for every area. I'm not sure if people are in the cultural arena, if they're writing about the arts, but I suspect even there, but certainly in, in think, kinds of things I do, um, the, all, for all of us, the ultimate justification of what you do is the fact that it is going to change the world, that it's going to make things better. If you, uh, if you read, actually, most of you probably don't want to read, but the, uh, the, there's the, uh, the, the magnum opus of, of John Maynard Keynes, the tremendously influential economist, um, the, the general theory of employment, interest, and money, which is a famously actually difficult book. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a very hard slog, um, even, even for professionals. Um, at the end of the book, also famously, at least within, within my uh, circles, um, he offers a self-justification. Why am I writing this book, which is really aimed at a, a, a technical audience, and, and I know that you know, the politicians are not going to read it. And he says, because ideas matter. Um, and the, the phrase, um, the line he says is, um, practical men who believe themselves exempt from any intellectual influence um, are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Uh, Madmen and authority who hear voices in the air distill their frenzy from the scribblings of some academic of a few years back. So it was ideas get out there. Um, but what if uh, the madmen in authority, or soon to be in authority, distill their frenzies from a fake news site that's being, uh, you know, that's that's being run out of St. Petersburg? Um, is that uh, what what role is there for for hard thinking um, in in that case? Well, unless we believe that there's some channel by which the scholarship does make its way to the real world, uh, then the whole enterprise is 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 pretty depressing. So you do want people to keep trying to make that connection. And so I, that's why, uh, although I have to say, of the various things I'm talking about, quietism is the one that, that I find uh, most personally seductive, but not, uh, not willing to go there. Um, appeasement. Um, the, uh, you can already see this happening, right? They, it, that, that because um, a set of ideas was politically successful, uh, that there must be something to it. And actually, you always, there, there, there's a certain number of, of policy intellectuals who are professional centrists. Uh, if there are two sides, the truth must always be in between. And if there's extremism, it must be equally extreme. And it doesn't matter what the content is. And, and, but you certainly are seeing a lot of people um, uh, already starting to find ways to, to claim that, that the, uh, um, that the, uh, the president-elect and his, his uh, inner circle actually have some good points. And uh, you don't want, uh, the trouble with that, of course, is that, that you know, power, might does not make right, power does not determine truth. Just because something has played well doesn't mean that it has any validity. And, and you, you really have to, uh, have to cling to your, to your principles. So you have to not believe that, that your side is always right, which is certainly not true not believe that you yourself are infallible, which is definitely not true, uh, but that, um, that the tools of reason, that actually trying to understand the way the world works and trying to, to, um, to base your, your views of how the world should be on, on, on that understanding, that that is something that is uninfluenced by political fortunes. You have to keep on, have to, have to hold to it. It's, it's just not a, uh, it, it's, you're, you're basically surrendering the whole point of your existence if you, 
if you, if you give in to that temptation. Um, emulation. Uh, so what we've just seen, not for the first time, but still at this point on a scale, really, a scale and a severity, uh, unprecedented, uh, in, certainly in my experience, uh, but we've seen that uh, simple, strong, completely bad, wrong ideas uh, have played very well. That they, it, there, there's no penalty, it turns out, for simplistic stuff, for stuff that's easily refuted, um, and that having a strong narrative, even if it's completely bogus, seems to uh, um, trump uh, having a sophisticated narrative that isn't very well, uh, it isn't, isn't so compelling uh, emotionally. Um, so maybe we should do the same thing. Um, and that, now, I, at this point, I feel like I should be coming up with examples on the other side of the political spectrum that are counterparts. Uh, but there actually isn't anything on, on the same level. It, it, you know, one, that's actually one of my previous points about the professional centrists. They always want to, it's sort of an axiom that, that the two sides of the political debate must be symmetric, but you know, they're not. It's just a, there's just a huge difference. Um, but you can see at least some um, versions of this, uh, things that may not be all that um, uh, compelling uh, or may, may not... Uh, you may not quite grasp uh, unless you're in, up my, in, in my uh, particular little um, pasture. Uh, you may not quite grasp uh, how, how bad they are, but the, uh, when I see people say, oh, if we do you know, Trumpist tariffs and we go protectionist, it's going to lead to another depression and, and, uh, and kill you know, millions and millions of jobs. You know, that's not actually what economic analysis says. Um, that's it, the, the, the argument that protectionism is a, is a job killer is not the, what, the te, the, what, what the textbook says. I wrote the textbook. Anyway, the, uh, um, <laughs> what the textbook says is that protectionism reduces efficiency and, and will make you poorer in the long run. It does not say that it's, that it's going to destroy lots of jobs. And yet you saw people who really have to have known better uh, putting out scare analyses. I mean, I saw some, some uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a name check, Moody's put out an analysis of the effects of Trump trade policy, which was uh, shockingly uh, ungrounded in any, in any economic model that, never mind what the other economic models are right, it's not, it wasn't grounded in anything that, any model that anyone would use for anything else. So they, they just made up a story on the fly to, to try to scare people against this, and that's, that's a, it's tempting. I mean, you might say, well, you know, then they'll pay, you'll pay a price when it turns out that your stuff was wrong. Well, we haven't really seen anybody paying any price for being wrong in, in recent months, so I, I'm not sure that that's the right story. Um, the way I would put it, and of course there's many other uh, things like that, and some of them probably much more severe than this, but um, the way I would put it is you have to remember what is it that we're actually standing for here. And of course, right, I have uh, values, political preferences. There's things that I want to see happen. And I think that's true of, uh, of the, the great majority of people who write for the New York Review. It's probably true 
of the great majority of people in this room. You, you, you want a society that, that is, is kinder to, to the unfortunate, uh, that, that uh, comforts the afflicted and, and afflicts the comfortable and not the reverse. You want a, a society that, that is, is open in, in a lot of ways. But, um, but there's something that it's, it's bigger than simply the question of what's going to happen to tax policy or, or social welfare programs or minimum wages. Um, if, if you, anything that's been increasingly clear over these, you know, over the, the 16 years I've been running, 17 that I've been running for the New York Times, um, it's that the, the underlying struggle isn't really, it, obviously it's between liberalism and conservatism and it's between um, government as, as protector and government as, as servant of, of, uh, of, of the oligarchy. Uh, but it's also at some level where it's, it's about uh, defending versus destroying the Enlightenment. I mean, uh, you know, when Grover Norquist said he wanted to bring government back to the way it was before the progressive era, uh, that makes him uh, kind of uh, on the left wing of the movement now. A lot of people there really want to bring it back to, you know, before, uh, be, before the, the, the Enlightenment. Uh, one, one is, it's, we're, not, we're not heading for the, trying to go back to the 19th century, we're trying to go back to the 16th. So, um, the, uh, and the point is that honesty, intellectual honesty, is as much a core value as everything else. Um, that, that you want to be, um, you, you don't want to start uh, telling noble lies to get, to convince people to go your way because that ends up, that means that you're sacrificing who you are. It means you're sacrificing what the whole point of what you're trying to do is. So don't, uh, don't, don't go hide in your, uh, uh, in your garden. Uh, don't, uh, uh, don't start finding ways to, to claim that, that nonsense is really sense after all. Um, and, and don't try to emulate the, uh, the, the tactics, um, uh, that, um, th those are, those are not solutions. Those are, those either are abandoning your, your whole, uh, the purpose, one way or another, those are all abandoning the purpose that, that a public intellectual is supposed to be serving. And so those are all non-roots. Okay, so what, what's, uh, what's a positive thing? What can you do? Okay, um, I think one thing we might want to do is have, uh, I don't want to understate the horribleness of, of, of what has hap just happened and what may still be about to happen. Uh, but you do need to realize that it was not the case that, um, that rationality was overwhelmingly rejected, uh, even you know, by the American public. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, as of, the, the, the vote count is still on, going on, but as of, as of right now, Hillary Clinton uh, won by the popular vote by 2.7 million, uh, or about 2% of the total. Uh, for perspective, by the way, in 2004, uh, George W. Bush won by, uh, by 3.1 million and 2.4%. Uh, and so actually, in terms of popular vote, Hillary Clinton won by almost as big a margin as, as George Bush won in 2004. And it's only because the, of the, the Electoral College and the way the votes were distributed that, it isn't, uh, that she isn't president-elect. Um, and we would add to that, and this is going to be my, I really don't want to spend 
election analysis. There's too much of that, but I, um, but I will say just for uh, uh, record that whatever failings there may have been in the campaign, the basic fact is that uh, that that she was mugged. Uh, she was mugged by the media, which were insanely hostile. Again, think about that: 35 minutes on policy, 125 minutes on the emails, where there was no wrongdoing. Just, just maybe some bad judgment, um, and uh, mugged by the uh, by the FBI. Not just the Comey letter uh, two weeks before the election, but the original back in in uh, uh, months earlier. That long commentary, which uh, saying no charges, but here's how terrible she is, which is was completely inappropriate. So, um, and by the way, unfortunately, that's not an accident. It's actually telling you that we were both on the media side and on the. The, the American deep state putting a heavy thumb on the election, what we're seeing is that we have some very serious degradation of our institutions. Uh, but that's not the same thing as losing the argument. That's saying that something has gone very wrong with some of our important institutions. And, um, and it may turn around uh, that, uh, you know, if, if, if they're without, pro my guess is without that Comey letter, we would be talking about President-elect Clinton right now. Uh, in which case all of the hard thinking, the kind of thing that, that public intellectuals try to do, would be having a direct input into the decisions of the next administration. So we came pretty close, but for a few outrages, we came pretty close to all of this stuff mattering. And this is not, this is not like the referendum in Italy where, you know, overwhelming majority rejected what, uh, uh, what, what the government proposed. This was something where, in fact, by a narrow majority, the public approved and would have been a bigger majority and a winning majority, except for, for some really terrible things. So it, certainly we're having a hard time making the case. And there's got to be so, there's something wrong with our ability to persuade when so many people voted heavily against their own interests. But it's, uh, it's not as dire in terms of the ability to communicate as as, as the political outcome might suggest. That said, clearly, we need to be doing something. Got, got to think about ways to, to be better at this. Okay. Um, one thing is, I think even those of us who have reached out, who've stepped beyond the academy and, and reached out, um, haven't worked hard enough at finding out how, finding ways to communicate with a, a wider group of people. Um, that there's still too much uh, uh, reliance on, on code, on, on assumptions that people will know or understand things that, that many of them don't. Uh, it's not a, a broad enough reach. Um, so, um, now the, the worst of that, again, is, is arguments from authority. Uh, I don't think I've done that. Oh, God knows, maybe you can probably find an example where I did, but I try not to. You know, to say, uh, you know, I was asked to sign various letters, you know, 100 economists on how terrible Trump policies would be. I, I had a excuse. The Times actually doesn't let me do that sort of thing. But it's in any case, but though, though that's incredibly ineffective. That's just, it, it just doesn't work. Not in, not in, in this America, not in this stage of, of, of our civilization, saying, I am an expert. Believe me, it's just, it just doesn't work. Um, but other than even beyond that, there is a, you know, the temptation to be, uh, to, the, the temptation to take it easy and not do the work of translating abstractions into something more concrete that people can understand. 
um, is, is very great, and we need to fight that. Part of it is, again, you do need to just find ways to, to skip um, not just the, the jargon words, but the, the hard to understand um, ways of framing things. Long, long ago, uh, my, actually my, my great mentor in graduate school, uh, the late Rudy Dornbush, he said, if you're writing for a popular audience, you do not start by saying, consider a small open economy. Uh, you say, in Belgium, right? So now, but I don't want to be in the position of just saying, you know, do what I've been doing. Everybody should be just like me, because I'm actually doing a bit of soul searching myself. And one thing I think is important that I don't do, and it does not come naturally, so I'm going to have to learn how to do it and force myself, is um, uh, individualizing stories about people. Uh, I, that is really not my style. It's not, not my natural style. It's certainly, uh, I'm not the kind of person who, you know, flies to a country, meets uh, somebody who, uh, a, a wise local person and who, who sounds somehow exactly like me. Um, it's, um, um, but also not the kind of person who does, you know, pound the pavement reporting and finds a family that's been afflicted by, but you need to do, it, there, there's a reason. Uh, it always used to annoy me so he still does annoy me when politicians give speeches and say, let me tell you about the, um, the, the Garcia family. And the, and, but they, they do that for a very good reason. That's how most people relate. You have to make it personal. So that's something that even public intellectuals, even people with a, who have a, you know, one part of their life is extremely rarefied work, uh, need to find a way to do. Um, you also need to focus. Um, it's, uh, it's important to, although you don't want to compromise your standards, um, you do need to ask, okay, what is effective? There, there's, there's people that need to be persuaded. There's a case that needs to be made. How are we going to do that? Um, and what's, what things do need to be um, brought across? People have limited, even, I mean, actually, even, even people who are, who sit and read through a whole issue of the New York Review every time it comes out, have limited time, limited attention span, um, and will very all too easily get distracted if you pursue tangents. So you do need to focus. Um, last night I did uh, uh, an event with Barney Frank uh, at, at the Graduate Center, just down, down the street here, um, which <laughs> we set it up, so it was going to be about uh, further progress in financial reform, and it ended up being, you know, can anything be saved? But, um, um, but Barney had a, a great line uh, talking about uh, political communication. He said, you, you must commit yourself to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, but not necessarily the whole truth. Sometimes uh, that's, that's a distraction, right? I think that's right. You need to focus. And, oh, and above all, if I can say this for those of us who are public intellectuals, um, Pursuing, uh, uh, no matter how genteely, pursuing feuds with their, your colleagues and and uh, and uh, and one-upsmanship, uh, always a bad thing. But in this environment, it's it's a complete sin. You you have to ask. You know, uh, it, it's not about you. It's it's about the world. Um, and then, um, well, keep on plugging. Uh, this is uh, actually my uh, just popped into my head. My grandmother, who whose English was uh, 
sometimes wonderfully eccentric. Uh, as, as she used to say, uh, Rome wasn't built overnight. Um, the, uh, um, you have to have patience and, and, and accept that a lot of times you're not going to, uh, you're not going to win the argument, at least in the short run. That, that, uh, that um, bad people uh, will, uh, will prevail in elections, that, that people you know are talking complete junk um, will nonetheless get the ear of, of people in power, will nonetheless, or, and, and perhaps persuade a lot of the public. Um, think of yourself as a, oh, suppose you're a, a serious, uh, you know, a serious public health medicine person, and, um, and you at some point have to accept that, uh, you know, you're never going to have the audience that Dr. Oz does, right? It's always going to be, uh, um, it, there's, there's all, but that doesn't mean that you can't, if you're persistent, make a positive difference. And so you just have to stay with it. Now, am I saying that, that right, that good sense, that, that good ideas, hard thinking will prevail in the long run? Uh, no. Um, it might, or, or you will win some victories. I mean, if you think about Maybe I've, I've been at this for quite a while, and so I've, I remember the, the, the depths of, of the Bush years, um, and, uh, um, which were not nearly as deep as the depths we're heading for now, but, uh, um, but I remember when uh, things like the idea that we could actually expand health insurance to lots of people seemed like pipe dreams. Uh, well, you know, we did it. Now it's in danger, although it can be interesting to see uh, what, what exactly happens, because they're... Uh, a lot of the people uh, uh, who would lose health insurance if Obamacare is repealed were, in fact, uh, uh, Trump voters. So we're going to be interesting to see what, whether they actually go through with this. But, um, but the point being that it, um, uh, the wheel turns, opportunities come along. And if you prepared, actually, health insurance is a really good example because there was a long period of discourse, serious discussion, what can work, what is politically feasible, not only what's ideal, but what's politically feasible, um, which meant that when there was that very brief moment when Nancy Pelosi controlled Congress and President Obama was in the White House, you could, it, it, there wasn't a, a long, well, how, okay, let's think about it. Why we, people were ready, and that's one of the things that, that you can do. Uh, but um, maybe those moments will never come, but you have, they, they certainly won't come if you aren't prepared. Um, I'm going to be honest. I, given, given how bad these, the situation is, given, uh, uh, given that the window may be closing on some things. I mean, uh, actually, everything I talk about is trivial uh, compared with climate, um, and we may be losing the window to 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 stop that short of catastrophe. You have to say, look, there's a there's a, a significant probability, a significant possibility. Uh, I don't know if it's a probability or not, but it's it's certainly not a small number um, that uh, that basically uh, 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 trying to find a, a better way to say it, but basically we're doomed, right? You know, there, there's a possibility that 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 this that really it, it's uh, where uh, what's what's the line? Uh, uh, where are we going, and why am I in this handbasket? Um, the um, uh, that things are really on 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 the way irretrievably down. But the, I think the way to think about it, if you can have the emotional stamina, is to say, um, well, if that's the case, there, you know, that, what good does it do to focus on that case? The, the, there's also still a, a sizable uh, chance, hopefully a probability, that we will 
get a chance of re at redemption, that we will be able to turn things around. And you need to be working towards that um, goal. Uh, so you just need, you need to keep a thick skin. Um, you need to um, uh, be prepared for reverses. You also need to be prepared to, uh, um, to receive a lot of, uh, of, a lot of personal attacks. Uh, my, uh, my mail is interesting, um, and will no doubt become even more interesting in, in, the, uh, in the years ahead. Um, so, but that's what, what you need to do. It's, a, it's kind of a commonplace thing, but just, you know, don't, don't give up. Keep on, on, on pushing, and keep on pushing for the, for the life of the mind as a, as, as a route uh, towards at least the possible improvement of, of life uh, in general. Um, it's an awesome, scary thing. And if you, it's not, it's certainly not uh, what I imagined was coming. Uh, uh, we, we really didn't, I, I, I knew that it, the forces that we've just seen were something that anyone who was paying attention knew were out there, but they turned out to be stronger than anyone imagined. And it's, uh, um, it may be, uh, it, it may be a long, uh, a, a long night. Um, and I, if, if I seem, you know, calm and reconciled, boy, am I not, right? I'm, I'm uh, uh, not a day goes by, certainly not a night goes by without a, you know, a, a, a period of brooding and, 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 uh, and, and panic. Um, but uh, you got to do what you got to do. And in all of that, the, the role for hard thinking uh, and an attempt to get that hard thinking um, across to not keep it closed within a little circle, but get across to a, a wider intelligent public is going to be, if anything, more essential than ever. I'm so proud to have been asked to give this lecture. Such a, a, a wonderful thing that Bob Silver uh, helped create. And um, uh, may we all look back uh, 10 years from now and say, boy, uh, uh, we, we were depressed, but it, it came out all right in the end, and try to make it happen. Thank you. All right. So, if you have questions, intelligent questions, if you can come up to the mic here, and um, I'd also like to say that the New York Review of Books has generously uh, donated 500 copies of the review, which you can get on the way out. And Paul Krugman's books are there also for sale. So come up and ask a, a, an informed good question. Hello. Thank you for your talk. Uh, I have a quick question about whether any of what we've seen with, you mentioned people voting basically against their own interests right. without maybe realizing it. To what extent is it really a failure of maybe the United States public education system that we're in the place we are? Okay. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Although I am actually, um, I mean, there may be some of it, but I have to, I have to say, um, uh, that my experience of, of talking uh, with people who, who hold firm to um, basically 
nonsensical ideas, uh, it's by no means restricted to people who are poorly educated. Uh, that it's something you can, you know, that, uh, uh, you know I've had, I've had um, high quality medical specialists while probing my insides start lecturing me on how uh, if, if, if only we weren't giving all of this money away to foreign countries, we'd have plenty for everything we wanted to do here, you know. Like, uh, you know, we, we actually spend, uh, you know, but it, it, it's ridiculous. We, we have almost no foreign aid. But the, uh, so, um, no, I, th I don't think that was the issue. And also, by the way, internationally, let's be clear that uh, countries that have better education, uh, better basic education than we do, uh, have, have their own, have, have these same things, right? Uh, Austria um, is a prosperous country, well-educated population, and, and they've narrowly avoided catastrophe. 48% of, the, of their electorate voted for an incredible heart-right candidate. Uh, Finland is, is said to have the best education system in the world, and yet it has a powerful um, nationalist, uh, essentially, what we would call white supremacist, uh, the true Finns. So no, I think, I think we're talking much more about deeper emotional things. Now it is true that people, there are things that people don't know. I'm not sure that public education would have solved it. I, um, uh, but but uh, unfortunately, we're, in America, we always believe that education solves all problems. And uh, it certainly solves some, but maybe not this one. I, I know this sort of uh, gets into the emulation and quietude yeah. and all that kind of thing. But somewhere in the back of the mind of one side, if we're going to consider it a side issue, is that famous Mitch McConnell moment where he said, let's, do not, let's not accept anything. Let's not do that and see on some level how that was successful. And to talk about whether or not, I'd like maybe your opinion as to whether or not that's a legitimate response. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's not a question of, 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 of thinking and understanding. It's a question of strategy. And there we do have to say that strategy worked pretty well for Republicans. Um, and especially, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lay down a blanket, never, never cooperate with, with Trump on anything. Uh, but um, cooperate, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, even more sense, uh, um, in, in this case than it did for the Republicans to, to cooperate on very little, not only because um, uh, no, he, he, this guy is kind of an existential threat to, uh, to, to who we are, but also because, look, um, anybody who, is, who has cooperated, tried to make a mutually beneficial deal uh, with the president-elect has ended up ruined. I mean, he has a history, his business career, you know, you're, you're basically, anybody who tries to cooperate with him uh, is, is, a, is a Trump University student. And it's, uh, um, think about, I mean, it, it couldn't have happened to a, a less nice person, but think about what happened to Chris Christie, right? I mean, uh, so if, if, if he, humiliation is this, what this guy does, so, so no, making deals with, with him is, uh, I think there's a, I mean, political strategist, I, not, I'm not an expert, although I'm, getting, I'm starting to believe that nobody is. But the uh, um, but the idea that that radical lack of cooperation is, for the most part, uh, a good strategy is is not crazy, and it's not it's not it's not in violation of, of what I've been saying. Hi, um, about fake news. 
uh, and the economy of the capitalist media, in particular, uh, how easily it is manipulated by special interests and foreign powers. I'd be very interested. Okay, I would have said, um, it's not clear to me that the, that the capitalist nature was especially critical. Uh, maybe some, I mean, you've got to say that cable news is, is a business and is, uh, um, and, and this seeking um, uh, viewers, but, um, but it wasn't, you know, uh, my employer is not exactly a business. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's, it's a, it's a for family uh, trust that, that has to, has to earn its way. But um, that I th it seemed to me that there are other things going on. That it wasn't simply that the, that profit. It wasn't just profit seeking that led to this. I think there was a, um, a lot of it. Uh, a lot of what happened was um, that part. Actually, partly just that the. Um, the whole news media enterprise is not set up to handle lies. Uh, it, it, this was true even, um, it, it was a problem already uh, in, in my first year of covering a presidential campaign, which was 2000. Um, you know, the George W. Bush was lying clearly about a bunch of stuff and the paper had no, my paper had no way of, of, of dealing with it. They just, every story was 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 he said she said. Um, and in fact, for a little while there, I was I was personally forbidden to use the word lie myself in the column. Um, and I joked back in 2000. I said that if a if a candidate said that the uh, that the, that the Earth was flat, uh, the headlines would read views differ on shape of planet. Right. It's just um, so. Um, and then on top of that, there both to Al Gore in 2000 and again to Hillary Clinton in 2016, there was this weird sort of, uh, almost like high school, the, the kids ganging up on the class nerd. There was a, a level of, of hostility that seemed to me to have more to do with small group sociology than, and, uh, than, than, than with, with large issues of, of capitalism. Uh, although I will say that this does, it does mean that candidates who, who actually pay attention to, to serious discussion of policy are exactly the kind that, that inspire that kind of uh, um, juvenile, adolescent, and yet uh, existentially destructive uh, reaction from a lot of journalists. Talked about um, the need to bring hard thinking and intellectual clarity outside of our normal circles, yeah. and also warned against the dangers of emulation. Yeah. And I feel a little bit of a tension between those two ideas, and I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on that. Yeah. So part of it, there, there are a couple of so um, part part of the what what I, I'm trying to say is that that. Is, is that um, you need to work hard that that the I mean the the two if you if you are trying to if you have a if you've done you know serious work or, or are trying to channel people who've done serious work there are two easy ways out in trying to get it out there to a wider public one of which is is just to invoke authority this is what the experts say which doesn't work now, and maybe there, maybe there was a time when it worked, but not in in, in this environment. Um, and the other is is to lie to go for a, for a some a simplification. Um, but what you really want to do is instead you got to do a little bit of a 
of a magic trick, find a way to say things that, that are, are intellectually honest, but in a, in a way that, that people can understand. And there are, look, there, it's, it, it's hard and sometimes it doesn't work. And, um, and I mean, I had some funny reactions to, uh, um, um, to that little paper I put out over the weekend, which is three pages of, 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 of charts and, and a few numbers, and um, saying that you know, just there's no way that the manufacturing jobs are, are not coming back, even with strong protectionist policies, you only get a little bit of it back. I got some people, reasonable economists, uh, who were saying you're, you're hurting the cause because that's not what the people who voted for Trump want to hear. And that's a that's that's an interesting uh, you know, but I, I think that's the point. You, that's that's where you have to draw the line. Not uh, now. You don't have you have to try to find a way to 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 say things that are positive. But I I don't think that there's uh, let's put it this way. There there is a tension between trying to reach the broader public and trying to be uh, true true to the to the facts and uh, to to your own understanding. But that's. That's that's the challenge is trying to, to reconcile that. And look, if uh, <laughs> if it was easy, then we wouldn't be where we are. In a way, it seems that uh, the the Trump election is just the continuing fight of the cities versus the non-cities in the United States, two different economies. Can you talk about how we resolve that in a world where the Electoral College was basically set up to give more power to those outside cities? Yeah. Well, actually, the Electoral College was created at a time when there was um, uh, we basically barely had cities. It was created uh, to to uh, to guarantee the political status of slave states. But anyway, um, everything everything in America, American politics, always ends up somehow coming back to slavery. But um, the thing I would say is, uh, well, um, first of all, it, we are bec actually several things. Is going to turn into a Monty Python routine. Amongst the, uh, uh, um, uh, first of all, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of non-rural voters also voted for Trump. And part part of the story here, I mean, the, the big surprise uh, uh, on election day really was not the the strong support of of white working class, although that was even stronger than one expected. And there were more voters, but but a lot of groups that we thought were going to be repelled by this guy ended up voting for him anyway. Remember, there was a point when we thought that uh, college-educated white women were going to go for Hillary Clinton, and they did not. They went uh, for Trump by a significant margin. So there's a lot of affluent suburbanites who, uh, who went that way, and that's not, that's not a, a, a rural city thing. Um, and yeah, um, I don't, I am, I'm wrestling with this. I'm trying to figure out. I mean, when people say, well, uh, Democrats need to drop the identity politics. Uh, is there anything that's more identity politics than saying we out here in the small towns and rural areas where only a tiny fraction of Americans now live, we are the real America and, and, uh, and New York values is alien? Uh, that's identity politics on steroids. Um, and I don't quite know, it's, I'm, I'm wrestling. I don't have an answer on how to deal with this. I mean, I, I am, I'm certainly encountering um, significant numbers of people who, if you just try to say, okay, let's talk about what we can do. It, what, you know, it, what, can we, what can we do for Appalachia? 
you know, the coal jobs are not coming back. Uh, let's talk about real policies that could help people. And the reaction is, you're a, you're a condescending uh, uh, liberal snob. Uh, we want those coal jobs back. I have not figured out how to deal with that, but it's it, that's certainly part of the the dilemma that that we're going to have to do looking forward. But you know, remember, in the end, uh, we are uh, we are we are an urban uh, urban and suburban country uh, with a political system that disproportionately uh, gives weight still to to rural America. But um, but I suspect that in the end, things will have to be one. There, I, I don't. I don't. I can't come up with any way that we're going to persuade. Uh, um, uh, well, ex except actually, let me put it this way: if, if a whole lot of people lose health insurance uh, um, in the next two years, uh, that might actually make at least some of them think, "Wait, what were what were we voting for?" But other than that, it's going to be really hard. Okay. Hi. Um what did you think about uh, the debates, the way they were structured and the way they were run, and if you were put in charge of the debate commission, how would you structure our presidential debates? Oh, yeah. No, the debates were, I mean, they varied in quality. Some were, some were pretty bad and some were worse. Um, um, they were, I mean, the actual, um, I mean, I'm not too, I don't know really about structure and, and what, what would have worked better. And, you know, they, all, all the polls said that, that Clinton won the debates handily and it didn't seem to matter that much in the end. Um, the questions were ghastly. Um, they were, a tremendous number were basically just, uh, you know, who's, who's better at posturing. And, um, and on what was supposed to be substance, uh, you know, we had over the course of, of, uh, of the debates, I guess, um, uh, something like six questions about deficits and debt at a time when you know, U.S. borrowing costs have never been lower, and not one, not one question about climate change. The most critical issue, and that was never raised. And I think that is, but I think the debates were reflecting the, the same mindset that led to, to uh, almost no policy coverage um, in, uh, in, in, on TV and and. And to a large extent, I have to say, in the press, there was some, and, but not, not, not that much. So um, it's not really so much the format of the debates as a Washington uh, uh, media establishment that has completely skewed uh, priorities. I mean, when, when, if the, there may be too many things, but at, at some point, people will look back and say, really? They, they, in, in, in the midst of this, they were taking you know, four questions uh, from the uh, provided by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which is, uh, you know, in, in my circles is, is pretty much a laughing stock at this point, but, and yet they were getting to, to uh, well, they were getting to uh, uh, dominate real issues like climate change by, by a ratio of four to zero, which I guess is infinity. So, okay, yeah. I'm struggling still with the whole issue of um, the impulse towards appeals to authority and, you know, the kishkas as opposed to public discourse, and I'm wondering how you struggle with that. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah. Um, 
well, first of all, I mean, appeals to, to my kind of authority, you know, to where the experts listen to us, um, uh, I've learned, um, you know, doesn't work. Uh, and also, I, I have to say, it's a kind of amazing how often I find people trying to argue me down on economics issues by appealing to some authority and saying, wait, you know, uh, I, I do this stuff too, uh, so, it, but it's just, it's just, a, it's a bad impulse all around. Now, the, the general feeling, well, that, that of deferring to power, that's, uh, yeah, that's most of the history of humanity, and we, uh, we're going to find out how many people in this country are willing to, to, to stand up to that. It just, it's, if you're troubled, you should be, but, um, but that just brings us back to why you, we, we must not give up. I've learned more about economics this evening than I have in my whole 80 years. Thank okay. you. I am curious to hear a few words about the other issue that the newspapers seemed to have picked up on, and that was an anxiety on the part of one set of voters about being deprived of the opportunities that another set of voters have, um, not necessarily because of race, not necessarily because of geography, not necessarily because of religion, but a sense that there are, that people who voted for Mr. Trump were voting because they were angry at what they weren't. This is not an economics question, right. but it is a question I think of some interest, at least to me. Yeah, well, th there's, one thing is the, uh, I mean, the, the the sense that that other that other people are are getting away with stuff uh, is 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 so that's I think not the deeper issue here, but there's certainly some of that. And and look, uh, um, uh, we we have retreating into my academic stuff. There are there are some um, quite interesting surveys um, on when they ask people, are you the beneficiary of any government program? And large majorities of white people say no. And that includes large numbers of people who get Social Security and Medicare. Uh, because they don't mean that. They mean the other, the good government programs that those people get, not, not the stuff I, you know, which don't exist, but they think they're, they must be. Um, no, and the, look, there's a real thing. There's a real point, which is if you are, uh, if you are a, a white, uh, uh, if, if you're a white American, particularly if you're in, in a, um, outside the, the major metropolitan areas, uh, um, especially if you're a white man outside the major metropolitan areas, uh, you have a sense that this was, this country did belong to people like you and increasingly no longer belongs to people like you and it's true. Um, that we are becoming, uh, uh, or we were becoming a, a diverse, multiracial, um, uh, much less clearly defined uh, group. Now, um, that and and the cultural anxiety, the the uh, the the sense that this is not not your place anymore, uh, is not unfounded. And somebody like you know, like. Like me can can say, but you know your life will be better. It, it's uh, but they 
it, that's, that again can come across as arrogant. Um, and uh, um, I don't know how to deal with that except the, the hope is that time heals that. I mean, actually part of, part of what's happened uh, traditionally in America is that outsider groups uh, become part of, become perceived as us. You know, at, the, at one point uh, Irish were regarded as, as subhuman and then uh, uh, a few decades after that uh, southern Italians and eastern European Jews were regarded as subhuman which actually seems to be happening again for some of us anyway. But the, uh, um, um, and so that the idea was that the circle would widen and the, the, the definition of the real America in people's minds would become more inclusive, but but it's it's certainly a time of change. This is a uh, I, I look at uh, I look at um, uh, polling uh, actually just generally what America was like uh, uh, during the Reagan years, and uh, and it's it's a very different country now from what it was then, and and some people are upset by the change. I don't know if there's a way to. Uh, time is is probably the main way that we we heal those anxieties, but time and familiarity actually if you, you know that there's a fair bit of evidence that anti immigrant sentiment is inversely correlated with how many immigrants there are in in an area. People who actually live with a lot of immigrants tend to see them as people people who live in places where they don 't see them see them as somehow dangerous aliens and the hope is that we eventually have that kind of acclimate uh, uh, you know that we get acclimated to people, but I don't know that, and and um, uh, it, it's tough to uh, change this. Anyway, I, th I think I'm I'm starting to go in circles. Three three last questions. Okay. Hello. Uh, during the Brexit vote, it's been said that there was a certain percentage of the population that voted against the ruling class, the political class, and the intelligence class. It seems that some of that happened here too. So how do you broaden the message in that kind of environment? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it was true, definitely. Um, and, and Brexit, the British vote to leave the European Union, was driven uh, by versions of the same anxieties that we have here, and I, I thought we were different, and, and I was wrong. Um, the uh, although again, we got to bear in mind that you know uh, um, the uh, popular vote was 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 not, is not to, uh, you know the people chose a uh, people chose a president, and they got the other guy. But um, the um, um, but and I don't know again that there's any. I think that's in a way that's the same as the last question. How do you deal with that that anxiety and and Certainly, um, those who are you know, those of us who are fancy intellectuals need to do all we can not to come across as arrogant and and uh, and contemptuous of of um, uh, of, uh, of of people who are uh, who who are feeling left left out. Um, on the other hand, I don't see a whole lot of of that actual. I see a lot of accusations of arrogance. And contempt, and very little of the real thing. I'm, I mean, I, I I can't think of any uh, political figures who uh, who would dismiss as un-American large sections of the country the way that is quite routine on the right uh, to dismiss uh, 
uh, again, to, to, to dismiss cities, uh, New York, the East Coast. Uh, I mean, we have a whole lot of people right now as we're doing the popular vote uh, as it pulls further ahead saying, well, yeah, but California isn't really America. Um, can we imagine that anyone would say, well, okay, no, Texas is not really America. Um, and yet, um, but, but the perception that there's contempt is, is strong and you do what you can to, uh, to, to seem more open mind, but I don't know. It's, uh, that, that gets really hard. It's, uh, I, I, I look at how many people, you know, write to me accusing me of, of disrespecting their values when I can't think what it is I, what, what did I say that, what could I say different? Anyway, yeah. I'm going to take things in a totally different direction. Yeah. Uh, I just have been un, unable to accept any of this, and I still, maybe I'm an optimist, think that somehow there may be a chance of impeaching him for some of the right. <laughs> of the sins that he has committed. I mean, uh, getting a foreign country like Russia into the election, right. uh, what all of his economic conflicts of interest are. Uh, do you see any any way and? Uh, of, of <laughs> I, I know there's no answer, and I know you don't, well, probably don't no. have one, but this is what I say. We've got to okay. do something concrete. Well, yeah, th but I, I suspect that, that it's, I mean, <laughs> several points here. Um, impeachment, anything, any, any accountability is going to depend on a Republican-controlled Congress. Uh, so that's extremely unlikely. Uh, uh, it's hard to think of what he could do that would lead them to, to go that route. And if they did... Then you end up with President Pence, who on many, uh, on many criteria could be just as bad or worse, less likely, to, less likely to, to start a nuclear war because somebody tweeted something mean at him, but, but otherwise, in, in many ways, just as bad. Um, now, there are, and, I mean, there are, there are possible, uh, I, 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 I actually have been finding myself wondering, what if the recounts, the, it's very unlikely that the recounts are going to change anything, but what if? Next week, we learn that there really is strong evidence that the computers were hacked. Uh, I mean, I think we need to know. I, I'm, I'm in favor of the recounts, not because I think anything will change. Um, um, and I want to know that that didn't happen. But if, if evidence does show up, my god, I know that that's going to be, well, be amazing. To, to, uh, and I have no idea how that would play out. Um, look, I think the, realistically, um, the the next big chance for a, a reckoning is actually uh, 2018, and not so much the national election, although conceivably we could have a, a big swing in Congress, but, but um, state elections. If we had a, a, a wave, if, if there was a, a, a huge Trump backlash that swept a lot of Democrats into state legislatures and state houses, that would be not only, you know, uh, it would have pretty concrete consequences, among other things, would have a big effect on redistricting uh, in 2020, uh, but also would be a, a really strong signal uh, that I think a lot of Republicans um, in Congress would take that, that, that they need to start putting some checks. So that's, that's, that's your, the, the next way station on the route towards uh, you know, possibly turning this around is mostly the 2018 election, unless we have a, a complete nightmare in, in the next week or two. Last question. Um, I write about education for the New York Review of Books, uh, which is the greatest edited publication there is. Uh, but I want to thank you for not taking the opportunity to bash public education, um, which the first questioner invited you to do, because as you recall, 
Donald Trump said during the campaign, I love the poorly educated. Yeah. And also, Nate Silver said that the best predictor of voting patterns was not income, but education. And the best educated counties with a population of over, over 50,000 went overwhelmingly for Hillary, and the least educated went overwhelmingly for Trump. So Trump's policy, he, which he's announced, is vouchers, privatization, school choice, charters, and he selected the billionaire heiress, Betsy DeVos, to carry out his yeah. wishes. This is really frightening. Because yeah. this could be, in fact, the death knell for public education as we've known it. It could be. Um, now, the interesting, um, yeah, the, the uh, uh, voucherization of, of, of public education, which, you know, that's, that's again, that's, that's taking us back to, uh, not to the 19th century, but to, to the 18th or the 17th. Um, the, uh, um, I, I mean, I'm hoping, and I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm hoping that people will realize what was, uh, that, that this guy that they thought was their kind of guy is, is not their friend. And, and uh, it's a little hard to do on the education front, um, although we have, you know, we have, but I, I am, look, I, I, I'm clinging a bit to, to, the, to this number. Um, between 2013 and 2015, as Obamacare went to full effect, you know, 13 million people gained health insurance. And then there's been some more since then. There were some more before because of, of lesser provisions. But that 13 million, of those, eight and a half million uh, were whites without a college degree. That is, they're the quintessential Trump working class white voters. Um, if they push through with unraveling all of that, if, if those counties in, in um, in eastern Kentucky that went 90% uh, for Trump, where the uninsurance rate has gone from 27 to 10%, thanks to Obamacare, if they realize what they just did to themselves, that may offer a real opportunity for a political reset. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.